As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
Hello and welcome to a very special extra edition of Australian True Crime in honour of Father's Day. It's a Loose Units special. We love Loose Units, the father-son podcast that grew out of the excellent book written by comedian Paul Verhoeven about the adventures of his father, former policeman, John Verhoeven. Paul's written another excellent book. It's called Electric Blue and I'll just let them tell you all about it. As you all know, this podcast is based on a book I wrote, Loose Units. And now Penguin is releasing the sequel, Electric Blue. It's bigger, it's better, it's weirder, and I'm really proud of it. Paul, I've read it, and it's a f***ing brilliant, heart-stopping, mind-blowing, horny adventure that makes all the other books in the world seem really sad. You should write the reviews for this. And now you heard, Dad. If you want this book to go absolutely gangbusters and be a bestseller, it's simple. Just head to Booktopia now and pre-order your copy. Well, you can buy multiple copies. I'm, I'm buying one. Good. You heard, Dad. Go to Booktopia now or hassle your local bookstore or go to Book Depository if you're an overseas listener and grab my second book based on real things that... Dad did Electric Blue. It's our Father's Day and you do not want to miss it. Electric Blue is next level in many ways. It's got all the charm and humour you'd expect, but it's also at times a pretty forensic look at a father-son relationship, which gives it some unexpected edges. It's complex, of course, and after speaking to John and Paul separately, I realised there were actually two distinct conversations going on. And luckily, I have two distinct podcasts. So in this episode of Australian True Crime, Paul and John Verhoeven will talk crime and forensics. And over on my other podcast, The Nitty Gritty Committee, you'll find Paul and John Verhoeven talking about other stuff, like being the son of professionally outstanding people and being the parents of a brutally bullied child. The episode is up right now and it's waiting for you as soon as you finish this one. There's a link in the show notes and on the Facebook page. Electric Blue is a great Father's Day present, there's no doubt about it, but I had to start my chat with Paul by asking about the fact that he really compares himself very unfavourably with his father throughout this book. I wondered if his dad, John, knew he had him on such a pedestal. Look, it was weird for me growing up with dad as a cop, but I don't think, yeah, I don't think it was until relatively recently. In fact, yeah, probably the time, about the time he read the book, about the time he read Electric Blue, that I think he probably realised how hard I was on myself. Because the thing is, I don't think he looks at himself the way I look at him. Me neither. I, having met him and seen the two of you together, mm. that was certainly not the impression I got at all. I didn't think that that was your relationship at all. Well, he certainly never portrayed himself in a way, and he's he's never lauded his accomplishments or his personality or his career over me at all. And I don't even think he's ever actively compared himself to me. That's something I did on my own because I kind of hit that weird bump where I was in my mid thirties and my career was going, was like, I had this weird like kink in my career and I wasn't a hundred percent sure of what I wanted to be doing with my life. And I just looked across at dad and at his accomplishments and just thought like by his age, he had a house and he had a wife and he had three kids and his careers had been incredible. And I was sitting there reviewing video games in my underpants. So there were some choices that needed to be looked at. And so I sat down with him and sort of started to, you know, talk through the case files from when he was a cop, because I thought, look, if I can just sort of figure out what happened to him when he was in his, again, he was 21 when he was um, a patrol officer in the New South Wales police force. And that's, that's what loose units was about. But this book, because it was, I guess doing the loose unit stuff and doing the podcast 
and we pretty much started the Loose Units podcast, you had us on your show Mm -hmm. and then you kind of helped birth the Loose Units podcast out into the world. So it's nice to be back, by the way. It's wonderful, yeah. It's lovely. But basically after we did Loose Units, the book, and after I wrote that, and then we did the Loose Units podcast and we did live shows and we've been through a few seasons of that, every single day that passes working with dad, I've started to kind of get more of an idea of what he's like as a person. And I've started to kind of get a more, you know, like a more three-dimensional view of him as a person. And I think just around the time that I started writing Electric Blue, I had a lot more questions than I ever did. You know how sometimes you don't know what questions you need to ask until you've Mm -hmm. done your research a bit more? And his time in forensics was really interesting because he and I have something in common brain-wise, and that is that I'm very convinced that he has ADHD like I do. Talk to the guy, you kind of get the impression that he's always, even his career path is, is the career path of someone who can't settle. I was on a litany of medication as a kid and as a teenager. And I think what was interesting about the forensics years was because I've always been very insular and I've always really enjoyed being in my head and creating little worlds and solving problems and solving puzzles and just being alone with my, with my thoughts. And the thing about being in forensics is you get to cross under the police tape and everyone else buggers off and it's just you and a puzzle. Now it's a puzzle that has extraordinarily high stakes and there's dead bodies involved, but you get to sit there, look at all the pieces and go, okay, how do I solve this? One of the fun things about doing Electric Blue was being able to take cases that dad lived through and, you know, um, things he did and effectively turn him into a character based on John. So when he read the book, he wasn't reading a factual word for word representation of what he lived through. He was looking at himself through my eyes, through this like prism of madness. So he finally got to actually see how I perceived him in a really literal, almost magical realist way. So when he finished the book, he was like, mate, that was weird, which it is, but it's also, it must be a very strange experience and you'll have to ask him when he comes on the show, but it must be a very strange experience to see yourself through someone else's eyes because when you grow up with someone's stories being bandied around, I think you sort of, they become like a larger than life figure. They become like a mythical archetype of themselves. And I never actually knew what dad did. When you come to one of the live shows and dad's had a few beers, you're seeing the podcast, but the book is not the podcast. The podcast is just dad and me sitting down. This is me basically giving the Hollywood treatment to dad's adventures. And this time around, I also got it to do it with mum as well, which was one of the fun things. So mum met dad on the force, which was really, uh, you know, like a very, very fast, very strange love story. And they were engaged after two weeks, which is way, way, way too fast. Like that's just crazy fast. Oh, it's worked. It did work very well. But I mean, that is one of the things about people with ADHD is they have, uh, they have hyper-focus and I think dad may have gotten fixated on mum and then that was game over. (laughs) So what happened was during the recording sessions for the podcast, dad had left the room and I was just sort of having one of those days where I thought, God bless you, dad, but I just need a break. And mum had come in and she sat down with a glass of wine for a few minutes and I just went, hey, do you want to just hop on the mic and tell me about some of your cases? And she's like, oh, I don't want to make a fuss. It's okay. And I said, mum, what do you make a fuss? And she goes, oh, it's not, it's not, I just don't want to, I don't want to make a, make a big deal out of it. It's okay. But after a few more glasses of wine, Michelle, it, it, it turned out that she had plenty to say and her cases were just absolutely incredible. And so we started talking through her time as a cop in the uh, 1980s as one of the pioneering members of the New South Wales police force. She was one of the police officers responsible for, because back in the day, female officers had to wear skirts, little pencil skirts. 
hurts. I know. And as you can imagine, if yeah, if you're if you're doing a foot chase and jumping a fence, that is not that's that's not not easy. That's what I've heard, right? You've yep. got, you throw your leg over a fence, and they had to have those handbags that they hated. They thought they were fugly, yep. and even their color of pantyhose was like there were rules around that, and super bad. Lots of rules around their dress. Yep. So mum was one of the officers, one of the first female officers in uniform to do actual police work, but also one of the officers who was responsible for moving towards pants, which sounds pretty basic, but that was a huge deal. And I didn't know that. And we ended up recording two episodes worth of content. And so about halfway through the writing of the book, where I'm just putting these insane spins and weaving through this B plot of me and dad, like learning more about each other and the ADHD and the bullying, I just went, you know what? I think it's time for mum to kind of become like a staple of the book. So halfway through the book, there's just this like Nugati center, which is just three or four chapters of mum, just mum, mum, mum. And it's incredible. And she read it. And her reaction was, I think she, she was more flattered than dad was. And I think that's because dad has become accustomed to me talking up his accomplishments. But mum is not used to the limelight. And God bless her this morning, because we're recording this the day that the book launches, and she was on the Today Show this morning with me, and she acquitted herself beautifully. She made a joke about Kalotz, which was weird. That was a whole thing. Um, but I think, yeah, as far as having mum and dad in the book, I got to learn more about them as a couple, which was really nice. I am creating a character based on dad, and as such, I get to choose which which traits I want to amplify, right? Yeah. So, for example, in the books, Dad has a degree of martial arts prowess, which he doesn't have in real life. (laughs) And that's not me paying a compliment to Dad. That's me giving the character based on Dad a cool trait, right? Mm -hmm. In reality, you know, I don't think he's ever won a fight. But if he gets into a scuffle and comes out on top, I'm just going to go, you know what, I'm just going to write a seven-minute fight scene with, like, choreography. And he's like, yeah, that's yeah, because that's pretty much how it would have happened, Paul. And I'm like, no, it wouldn't. So... I think so. You're perfect. You're perfect together. You well, two. I think giving giving my dad first of all, if you work in the emergency services, I think you get basically sweet bugger all for the most part. You you do not get props. It's sort of like you know if someone's doing their job well and it's one of those background jobs, you don't compliment them. You just it it just is. It's not until something goes wrong that you actually start pointing out that it's being done wrong. And I think so. Very true. They get so much attention when there's a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. and, and I, I mean as they should, especially given the responsibility and power they have. Yes. But but with dad, you know, I think he spent decades doing work in the emergency services because. It, you know, it, it grabbed him and it seized his attention and he really enjoyed doing it. But it must be a weird feeling to have been an antique dealer for 20 years and to have this strange just period of your life where you where no one talks about it. No one acknowledges what you did. And I'm not saying he would have a chip on his shoulder at all because he absolutely didn't. But by the same token, it must be really nice to finally have someone acknowledge what you do. And then we have people who are in the emergency services across the spectrum of the emergency services getting in touch with us after each episode going, I didn't know we were allowed to talk about this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, just grab your parents and talk to them because it is, I'm not saying you'll get a book out of it, but I think it's been really, really nice to be nice to dad and give him some props publicly and kind of, you know, just, just give a little tip of the hat to that because it can't have been easy. I mean, I've never seen a single dead body and dad's probably seen 
hundreds, and mum as well. You know, these people are just. I mean, who would who would volunteer for these jobs? It's crazy. You mentioned very, very early on in the book the fact that, and you do it skillfully. You don't say it as, as sort of blatantly as this, but you point out that your dad has moved from policing into being a fireman, and then moves mm. into other kinds of policing and investigations. He has a short attention span. He likes to move around, but he likes to move around into quite adventurous jobs and helping people. That's a big part of his yeah. life up until the antique dealing. I don't, I've never known how that really fitted in. No one does. No, if you were to round up and kind of compare it to another, like a cool profession, it might be archaeologist. I'm assuming it's a front. To be honest, I'm assuming the antiques dealing was always a front for some kind of covert career. Yeah, that- everything's a front. I know. Here's the deal. I, this is my rationale, Michelle. If it was a front, they would have made him stop the podcast by now. Because yeah, right. Because the podcast and the books are drawing attention to the person. You can't be an undercover spy and an A-list celebrity. Not that he's an A-list celebrity yet. Now, tell me about the bullying that happened at school. The start of year six, my parents moved about two suburbs over and for some reason pulled me out of my school where I had lots of friends and put me in a new school. And I think at that point I was oh yeah, I was bullied for about five years. Ooh. It was basically every day. Now, the book, there's some chapters in the middle of the book that go into detail about the bullying stuff and it's a bit graphic and a bit stressful, and it really upset Tegan, my wife, and it really upset my parents to read that stuff because they didn't yeah. know that's, that's how I felt about it. But one of the sticking points in the book and one of the main through lines is me processing the fact that one day during the sessions, Dad told me this story about how uh, he got a call in uniform. To, like there was this period where they had to do a lot more community outreach and they were encouraged to just, you know, do like shaking hands, kissing babies kinds of stuff. And Dad goes to this house and there's this little kid who was being bullied. And he said, don't worry, I'll go and sort it out. And so the next day, he's in his early 20s in uniform. He and his partner, Julian, rock up at this school. And the kid's getting bullied in the schoolyard. And dad calls the bully over and threatens the kid to knock his block off. And then he just – and the, it just changed this, uh, this kid's life. And I was sitting there listening and I was so angry. And he couldn't understand why. And I didn't tell him really at the time, but I wrote it into the book. And we ended up discussing this at length. The fact that I had a heroic cop dad who – actively stopped bullies from bullying strangers. But when it came to me, he didn't do anything. And what happened to me in high school, throughout high school, was really bad. Did you tell him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. and he, so he made it a conscious decision not to do that, not to go to school and say, wait, come over here and I'll... He, he didn't quite... Well, at this point, they weren't in the police force, uh, which is... But even then, he was still him, himself. I mean, he was still... 100%. At one point, I found out after my parents had read the book... And they really liked the book, and I think it took them by surprise a fair bit. And they told me something that they didn't tell me until after they read the book, and that was that, unbeknownst to me, at several points, they went to my high school and threatened legal action uh, a couple of times, which is a big deal. The thing is, it didn't actually do anything because the school was so systemically rotten that by the time things got resolved, I was leaving anyway. And when I went back to high school, so after I did a year of TAFE, I went back to high school, and I voluntarily went to a public school at Cromer, um, which is weird because Cromer High is kind of a hub of true crime. Fully, it's the school from Teacher's Pet. When I read that, I was like... Oh, shut up. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, by the way, it turns out my mum is a big fan of true crime podcasts. She drops this after a few shandies during our interview. And then she says, oh, yeah, I went to Chroma High. Oh, yeah, I knew that teacher. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Your mum has got to speak up more. I know. For real. She waits, she waits until the window has passed. And then she's like, oh, yeah, I was on the grassy knoll. So, you oh, know, that's. Mom. But so. 
So why didn't they tell you? So did they not tell you at the time to sort of spare your dignity? Were they, was there thinking, don't tell Paul, we don't want him to be embarrassed or he might try and stop us, but we're just on the quiet going to go and talk to the principal and... I don't know. You haven't asked? No, I, I don't know. I mean, the fact is, look... <sighs> They were quite young. I mean, you know, they have me when they're 21. They're young parents. I'm sitting there and we're just, we're all, we're all just kind of muddling through. And the fact is, they say the best revenge is living well. And uh, whilst the best revenge, I think, might be two bricks clapped together below a certain body part, mm. the second best revenge is actually living well. And I think I actually have lived really well. Like I've had a really good run. And mm. the fact is, every week, twice a week now during lockdown, dad and I get to sit together and we just adore working together. And now mum's involved and, you know, Tegan produces the whole thing. And it's just become this really nice therapeutic way of kind of flushing away all the mistakes we made because they made mistakes. I made mistakes. The book was also a way for me to kind of purge a lot of that bitterness that I had and resolve a lot of that stuff. And I think I did ask mum and dad if they would have done things differently, if we could go back and have a bit of a do-over, you know, would they have gotten back into their old uniforms and, you know, <laughs> rappelled down the building and come into the, come into the school. And they said, no, we just would have, we just would have pulled you out of the school sooner. Like, you know, bullying is a really, it's a really tough issue and it usually happens away from prying eyes. And there's so few actual avenues of recourse. Mm. I, yeah. I, I don't know. It was really tough. I think one of the things that I really got to f- hash out through electric blue is that I got to realize that it's okay that I'm different. It's okay that I am a different person because by being a different person, I didn't have to see that stuff. Dad actually saved me from having to endure those horrors. And by me being a different person, dad got to experience what he lived through through a completely different viewpoint 30 years on. So we both kind of got this yin yang style, you know what I mean? We both completed some part of the other person that was missing. I don't want to be a cop anymore and he doesn't ever want to write books about himself. So we kind of fulfill those roles in each other's lives. And now on his bookshelf, there are two books about him. That's not a normal thing. For, I just, I'm like, dad, no matter how depressing the world gets, no matter how on fire things are, just before the apocalypse crawls up and bites us in the ass, can you please look at your criminally understocked bookshelf <laughs> and see the fact that there are two books written by your son about you, published by Penguin and released globally. That is fucking insane. Be grateful. And also, Loose Units has been optioned to get turned into a TV show. I knew it. It's crazy. And now he's like, uh, maybe, um, I'm like, who do you want to play you? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, Sam Neill. And he's like, yeah, I guess. <gasps> Russell Crowe? Yeah, Rusty, you'll be okay. So now he's getting all hoity-toity about who would play him in a TV show. So, you know, it's uh, it's really been something of a whirlwind. And I don't think, you know what's funny, Michelle? I wanted to be an author for so many years mm-hmm. and I just wanted to write books. And now Electric Blue's out. And I don't think I could have written anything nearly as good as it and yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty good, but I don't think I could have written anything like it if I hadn't sat down with dad and tried to kind of help him delve through some of that stuff. It's just everyone has come out a winner from this, really. Yeah. It's been so lovely. Congratulations. It is a very good book. It is a very, very good book. It's very entertaining. Thank you. Maybe it's the same as me in the True Crime podcast. It's like when you're not trying to make something successful, but you're actually mm. doing something that's very, very important to you and heartfelt and you're doing it because you're passionate about it. Yeah. It's amazing how that becomes something to other people. Other people can feel that and can engage with it. 100%. That's Paul Verhoeven, and the new book is called Electric Blue. After the break, we'll hear from Paul's dad, John Verhoeven, about his time in forensics. Thank you to our patrons, including Kathleen, Eleonora May Horton, Colleen MacArthur, 
Ryan William and Fiona Crisp. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up on Australian True Crime, John Verhoeven will share the story of a particularly colourful scene he attended during his time in forensics. I feel as though I should provide some kind of trigger warning, but for the life of me, I don't know exactly what to warn you about. Just keep your wits about you, is what I'd suggest. That's coming up. But also, this week's Nitty Gritty Committee, my other podcast, features the same guests as this show, John Verhoeven and Paul Verhoeven from Loose Units. But in that other podcast, we'll be diving deeper into the father-son issues we've touched on here, particularly into the extreme bullying Paul experienced in high school. I don't know that anyone has the answers for what to do in that situation, but we'll hear more about what the Verhovens did and didn't do, and we'll get to the bottom of why. For now, though, it's time to chat with the always entertaining John Verhoeven. Well, I did something weird with my hair this morning. What did you do? <laughs> well, I brushed it. <clears throat> no, I, I slicked it back because Christine hates it. 
Like I try and shock her, mm-hmm. but she's unshockable. Mm. Oh, she's telling me to have some tea because <sighs> I've got I've, I haven't been too well. I was so stressed yesterday that I went and had a COVID test. Yeah, and when did you get back. the results? No, I've got them. They came in twelve hours. Oh wow! Saying uh, negative. Great. And but that's my second one. Have you had one yet? No, no, I haven't oh, needed fuck. one. They're so bad. Is this the one up the nose? The big yeah, but one? it goes right. No, but it literally goes to the brain. Not for those of us that have a brain. <laughs> now you know I've spoken to Paul. But I don't know what about, which is great. Well, you do know because it's you. It's always you. That's oh, that's <laughs> it. Shit, sorry. That's all right. That's all right. It's nice that Christine's there and I can hear her off in the distance because he was saying that, you know, there was that day where he said, hey, mum, sit down, you know, and let's have a chat. And so there's a bit of Christine in this book. Yeah. And then he said, oh, and she had some great stories. He sort of didn't know that. And I said, well, it's probably hard. Maybe that's their relationship. Maybe that's your relationship. Do you think it is that you're the story guy because you're a great storyteller Mm, and, you know, yeah, Yeah. and that she's just sort of, she just lets that be. Look, um, she was interviewed on Channel 9 this morning. I know. But she didn't get to tell. So would you like a bit of a scoop? Yeah, please, yeah. Because the last time you and I chatted was about cum-soaked tissues in a roof. Right, it was too. And and that was was your, you elicited that story out of me. But sweet, Christine, I mean, things happen so quickly in TV land, as you know. I mean, I sat next to you that morning at Channel whatever. That's um, right. In the morning and... That's so, right. And it's intense, the whole experience. But Christine was hoping to talk about, well, one of the questions was going to be at what time or when in your police career did John do something really crazy? And, you know, when I first worked with Christine, she was senior to me and I had long admired her, not that she knew, and she'd come into the station late at night and she was working playing clothes and I was working what was called a Sylvester switch, one of those ancient things with all the, the cords. Oh, like, the phone switch, yeah, yeah, like, board, you, like you in the cartoons. Them. Correct, and you see them in, the, in, in black and white films in the 40s. We still had one at North Sydney Police Station in the early 80s <laughs> and, and I'd be working the, the switch and Christine would come in and she was senior to me and she was just classy and, and she would lean against the counter and I'd be sort of looking at the back of her and she would with one, she'd slip one shoe off and she'd rub her foot up her calf and I'd be just sitting there going, it was like one or two in the morning when your senses are definitely heightened because you're basically delirious. Mm. And I, I just thought, this, this is one foxy woman. That's um, very and that's, sexy. And I, I'm not going to say that to Paul because, you know, it's just, yeah. I can say things to you. But, yeah. but one day I was, so bear in mind she was senior to me so the senior person, they control what goes down. The junior person's the driver and what they say goes. And we had a call, it was in the morning about 10.30 and it, was, it had been raining and we got a call to an armed robbery and I thought, here's my big opportunity to really impress Christine. And I took off and I came around a corner and I completely lost control of the car. Oh. And I mean lost control of the police car. We spun around. We did a 360. We almost had a head-on with a black BMW. And if that wasn't bad enough, Christine was singularly unimpressed. Uh, And she's a woman of few words. Like when she speaks, people listen. (laughs) Unlike me, that just I do tend to waffle on a bit. (laughs) And then then we we broke the golden rule. We pulled up right out the front of the the bank. It wasn't an actual armed robbery. It was a hold-up alarm. Oh. But we didn't know that. I've pulled up right out the front. 
No, I broke every single rule in the book. And, you know, Christine, she said, look, what are you doing? I mean, you could have had her killed many times. I know, I know. know. And, uh, you know, and I just realised that that was not what impressed Christine. What was it that impressed her? Well, I proposed to her after two weeks. We were flying to Fiji and I had a small ring, which I popped out on the plane at 40,000 feet, and I proposed to her. And she said yes, and we've been together for uh, almost 40 years. Yeah, it worked out, huh? It was amazing, yeah. Were you shocked when you read Electric Blue at the way he compares himself to you, Paul? I found reading that book, I read it over two days because I needed to really compress the experience and do it properly. Um, I'm not a great reader. I just, uh, my mind is all over the shop. But when I do find focus, it's um, I bury deep. And when I read the book, it was almost, I found it sort of very poignant and I kind of felt that he was saying things to me through the book. I know, And it was just, honestly, it was very, uh, it was tough for me. I, and I, I had, I felt bad. I felt bad that I hadn't, oh God, how do I put it? I just thought, I mean, that ter- when, when, when I read that bit about, he said, Dad, why didn't you? Like, you know, he, he kind of portrays me and sees me as sort of a, as a super, superhero. And My then, words, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then I, I, and then he says, but Dad, you were, uh, basically he, he wanted to know why I didn't be a superhero and, and go to bat for him. And it was it was just, it was pretty full on, the the emotional. Uh, I haven't had this discussion with Paul because uh, I only read the, the book, you know, less than a week ago. But it was a very, uh, it was a full on moving experience. And it's good that you're talking to me about it because maybe you can be like an intermediary where he will find out some things by listening to you. Look, I, I, Michelle, I, I'm stoked to be talking to you. Great, me too, me too. Seriously, it's so, it's a real treat. Oh, wonderful, Um, me too. Let's talk about forensics though because I'm writing this book about the forensics guys here in Melbourne now, right? Wow. Yeah, it is. It's awesome. Oh, God. It's awesome. And the great thing about talking to Stephen was being able to give it the context of, you know, his long career. Mm, Yeah. And I had no idea that people literally would say to a young doctor back then, don't, what are you doing? Mm. And now this facility here in Melbourne is so advanced that they had didn't have to change anything to deal with the COVID because they already use PPE for everything. Incredible. Yeah. It's fantastic. Such, yeah. So what was forensics like when you came to it? Was it respected? Was it cool? I don't really know why I'm fascinated and was yeah. fascinated. I just like the idea because every crime scene that you'd go to as a police officer in uniform, you, were, you weren't allowed in. You'd have to just go back and go to car accidents and, and just mundane and noise complaints. And in the back of my mind, I knew that there were these plainclothes detectives that had been studying and become scientific investigation, crime scene investigators. And I thought, this cannot be real. It, it just sounds so exciting. Mm. And I became obsessed. And when I become very focused, I, I just thought I need to do this. And I, I went for a lot of interviews and I obviously impressed them. And, I, and that started this, this, and it was on the job training back then. That's amazing. Not now. I mean, it's completely mm. university science related. And I just started going to a few uh, horrendous jobs and then I just thought, look, it's, it's terrible, but it's fascinating. And I have great admiration and respect for 
the people, the forensic pathologists. And at one of our live concerts, uh, shows in Sydney at the Giant Dwarf, um, five forensic pathologists from Brisbane Great. flew down. They were like groupies. They, they had to turn the lights off. They wouldn't leave us. And they were telling us stories that were so terrible. There are some wacky people out there. Yeah, of course. So, you know, different horses for different courses. So um, what did you find when you started doing it, though? I mean... I found it really hard to sleep because I'd come home. Can you imagine how wired you are? You've just been to the most... I've just, you know, used my anal thermometer, not on myself. And, uh, and you know, can you just... And it's very kind of intense and exciting and it's, there's adrenaline and there's the media are outside. They really want to know. Are you on call? Do you get the, the phone Yeah, call? you're on call. Yep. John, yep. John, we need you to come to this yep. address. Yep. Yep. There's, yep. You've got one. Yep. You roll up, you go under the tape. Went to one with three dead bodies and when you go in, no detectives are allowed. It's just forensics because you've got a crime scene mm. and you cannot afford to destroy any evidence you could be just walking in there and just spraying your dna i mean you know you've you've watched those films of when someone sneezes of what happens can you imagine if a police officer is inside some horrendous crime and he sneezes Mm. and there's his dna just just blows over everything and then you've got things so what you do is you go into the room i went into this particular one where three people were um deceased Mm. but the thing is michelle is the murderer one of them? So is it a Mm murder-suicide? Now, we hear about a lot of murder-suicides. So just imagine you go into a house and in every single bedroom is a child Mm -hmm. and every child has had their throat slit, okay? And then you are looking for, I hate to say it, and, but I'm just going to, let's just be very clear here. I'm going to talk statistically here. On the balance of probabilities, it is going to be the dad. The dad. Yeah. Now, there are people that are going to go, well, fuck you. But, yeah, it's occasionally the mother, maybe a son, could be a daughter. But let's, let's just go with the mainstream. And what you do is you, you're working with a partner and you grab a chair and you just sit down and you just get into the scene. And you just sit quietly and you absorb and look, observe. That's why I've got a very, very good memory for the visual, um, but I can't remember people's names. So all my, my brain energy is going into the visual. And I'm, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking around our place here and I'm imagining if, for example, it was a crime scene, what sort of things I'm looking for. And obviously one of the things is the murder weapon. Yeah. You and your partner, are you talking through your observations to each other or are you sitting quietly and just... It's best not to do that at this stage because you can then, what you can do is you can inadvertently almost pollute your own ideas Mm -hmm. because that's what happens in a major crime. If you've got a lot of witnesses, you have to separate them really, really quickly. Otherwise, you end up with one story that has got nothing to do with what actually happened. Of course, yeah. So you just need to piece together all that vital information and, Mm. you know, there are clues there because it's not your house. I mean, I went to a murder-suicide, but the guy stabbed himself 23 times. Now, go figure. That's amazing. You must not have realised that for a long time, right? Because no one would think that was possible. That's right. So 
you know, but in this particular case, a highway patrol officer had actually rocked up and seen the guy stabbing himself oh. after he'd murdered everyone else. It, you just can't imagine. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine stabbing myself. No, it's very unlikely. God. And you mm. were the camera guy, was that right? You were the photographer? I did everything. Oh, okay, right. No, in, back in the day, we did everything. Mm-hmm. We did everything. And we were using film, actual film. So what you do is you had to take the photographs you were only allowed to shoot in black and white because they believed back in those days that you could make things look worse than they really were with filters. I mean, please. That you could sort of distract a jury by making yeah. it look bloodier than it was. Correct. Or with domestic violence, you could make the lady's bruising look worse, which would be bad for the poor defendant, mm. oh, for fuck's sake. The thing is, Michelle, if it was two in the morning and you were at some horrendous crime, can you imagine that you only get one chance? Yeah, I can't imagine that. There's no take two. Mm. What can you imagine would happen if you got back to the lab and none of your film worked out? Like, you may as well leave the police force, tender your resignation that night because you are finished. It's so hard for us to remember that. We are so used to being able to look at every photo as we take it now. Michelle, that- you, you had, we had no idea. We, we had no idea. But the thing is you would go back at 2 in the morning, you're delirious, you're stressed, you're just full yeah. of emotion. Then you would go into the dark room and you would take out the film and you would develop it and print it. That night. Yeah. I couldn't sleep if I hadn't because I'd be so worried that they hadn't worked. Yeah. And you you would have taken a lot of physical evidence as well. But in terms of trauma, um, I I couldn't work in a morgue. I used to go to the morgue okay. many times a week and watch the most terrible things. Look, basically the, the new book, Electric Blue, is all about the most incredible forensic stuff. There is one story that didn't make it into Electric Blue, but we have it for you. It's a bit out there in the true spirit of loose units, and it's a case that's baffled John for years. I was working at Chatswood Scientific. We had a call to Kirribilli, and it was uh, in the morning. It was Mm -hmm. a weekday morning. Now, where's Kirribilli from uh, from Chatswood? It's heading down uh, south towards Sydney Harbour, near the Harbour Bridge. Very green, very well off. Right? Oh, stunning. Yeah, okay. It's just, it's world class. Opposite the Sydney Opera House. Oh, yep. Hang on, is that near where the Prime Minister's house is? Oh, yeah, Kirribilli House, in that vicinity. Okay. And okay, it was in a really, really nice block of units. It was one of those blocks of units where you'd go up to a particular floor, but then when you'd stand, there were no lifts, and you'd stand at the uh, top of the stairs where you'd just exited the stairwell, and you'd look down a long corridor. Now, to the left of this corridor there was a um an iron railing fence and to the left of that was obviously fresh air and the adjoining building so you know there are really only two ways to get out of the building you could either jump over the balcony or you could use the stairs so no lifts and then you'd walk along it was a little bit like a like a country motel where you'd there'd be a long long external corridor and peeling off to the right in this particular case were all the entrances, the doors to all the apartments. Mm-hmm. So looking down sort of into a vanishing point, there may have been perhaps five apartments on each level. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as I said, the only way to access each corridor was a common set of stairs at the end of the building. 
So we were met at the front door that was partially open by North Sydney uniformed police officers mm-hmm. and detectives. So this was a real mystery. Now, bearing in mind, as all the listeners know, one of the most important things about any potential crime scene mm-hmm. is to preserve the crime scene. Yep. So obviously my partner and I, we went into the apartment and it was very, very warm. It was... Um, what time of year was this? Well, it was it was summer, but this place was warm, but not in a normal sense, and it was slightly humid. So it had this sense of uh, uh, sort of it had a bit of a dare I say it kind of a, an Asian jungle sort of warm, slightly sticky feel about the place. The second we walked into this apartment, on the ceiling were thousands of droplets of what appeared to be water, but Mm. they were everywhere. But they were a funny colour, or a yellowy colour, yellowy colour. Okay. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And I just couldn't figure out for the life of me what on earth this meant. Were they dripping? No, none of them had dropped. The floors, all the floors were dry. Okay. But my partner, my colleague, Mm. he said to me, look, you, you go ahead and he set up all the camera gear, which was pretty involved back then because it was all with film. And he had all the big the flash units and he set everything up. And then he got me to sort of scout ahead. So I went down this hallway and the first thing I saw was uh, a bedroom. And I went into the bedroom mm-hmm. and there on the double bed, which had been slept in, so the blankets were all pulled back mm-hmm. and it was fairly disheveled. But then upon closer inspection near the pillow or pillows were a number of uh, sex aids. Uh, the first one was a massive uh, dildo. It was, it was a big one. Um, how do define... I define big? Yeah. Speaking in uh, in inches, I would say it was maybe 15 inches long. Damn. And it was, um, but it was not so much the length that was so impressive. Mm-hmm. It was the girth. Now the girth was the, was the, it was, it was the diameter of a decent sized coffee cup. Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, so too big. It was, it was gargantuan. Yeah. And then I got up fairly close to it and, um, it became quite evident that there was uh, fecal matter on the, uh, the end of the dildo. Right. And um, I'm not sure at that stage whether I took any samples. Being the junior man, mm. all those tasks were, were always given to me, which I found um, fairly distressing. But there were also some other sex aids. There was a, um, there was a fist, like a massive, not massive, <laughs> but medium sized, like a, kind of like a baby's arm. Any fist is big enough in that context. Yeah, but it was sort of... And I've since learnt that it's called Fist of Adonis. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? It's pretty bad, Well, it's yeah. not terrible, but to each their own. That's not um, But it's a commercially available item. Hang on, are they, are they sponsoring this episode? No, no. <laughs> then there were some other items. Uh, there were a couple of um, ampules of amyl nitrate. Uh-huh. Have you heard of that? 
Yes, doesn't it like loosen the orifice? To- I mean, I'm not sure exactly because I haven't used it, but it used to have a trading name, like a like a sort of a nickname. It was called Rush, and it used to be okay. sold in sex shops. And when generally males, because it was very much used in the gay community during the yeah. 70s, 80s, but that's really dangerous stuff because it's actually used in, I think I think it's used if people have a heart attack, it revives, it does something to the heart. Okay. So it's not meant to be used for that. But anyway, I digress. Now, I could hear something in the, in the far distance and I started to think it sounded like a shower. And I thought, now we had been in this place for probably maybe getting near 10 minutes because mm-hmm. we want it to be really, really thorough. As I'm walking, I'm, I'm being very, very observant because you, we, we don't know what this is. We just know that we've been brought in mm. because something's not right. And I could hear the shower going. And I came into the kitchen and the dining room and everything was kind of, look, someone's obviously living here. It, it was just like a normal, slightly, slightly cluttered apartment. And then the noise of the shower was getting louder and louder. And I looked onto the ceiling and everywhere I looked were these droplets. Tens, probably, well, definitely thousands of them. And they were on every ceiling. And then with great fear and intrepidation, I slowly made my way into the bathroom. And the first thing I saw was a tiny, tiny TV. And it was sitting on a little stool and the stool was outside the bath but I could hear the shower yeah and the curtain was pretty well half closed so from my angle when I walked into that bathroom I was aware there was a shower running I was aware that the curtain was half drawn I was aware there was a TV and the television was set at 45 degrees, so that the assumption, and I'm speaking with a little bit of hindsight here, but it, I realised that the TV was set up for somebody inside the bath to be able to view. And as I looked at the TV, I realised that there was a, what I would describe as probably a Danish B-grade porno movie showing and it was on a loop. Now, the listeners might say to me, how do you know it was on a loop? Obviously, I watched the movie and I became aware that it was a fairly short film, fairly, um, what's the word you use to describe a film that's oh, grainy? It was fairly grainy. Then I looked to my left and I saw a foot not moving, discoloured, and I realised that quite possibly... It was a deceased male person, more than likely the occupant of the flat. And as I slowly drew back the curtain, the shower, the water was still covering, like pouring on him, like a shower. And he was seated. Uh, not yeah, he was sitting on his on his bottom, and one of his legs was outstretched. That's the the leg that I first saw, and he was he was dead. And then I looked closely, and he had a um, a douche bottle, like a big rubber. How would I describe it? 
like a massive, like a cake baster, but a, but a, like a, like a sort of a small balloon with a pointed end and a, like a, from memory, a black detachable nozzle. And that particular item was inserted in his rectum. Okay. So I just, I mean, how old was I? I was mid twenties, yeah. 25. Yeah. And I am staring at this deceased person and there was no there was no sign of uh, autoeroticism because with autoeroticism you need a, a way of choking off the blood supply and the okay. oxygen supply and it certainly wasn't in my opinion i just didn't i could not fathom what on earth had killed him but then one comes back to the particular fluid on the ceiling and because i was relieved and assist i'd be sort of coming in and out in and out in and out of of all these different jobs but you know i didn't get to follow them through this case was one of the greatest mysteries of my entire police career insofar as every single window had been sealed up really well. And I remember there was a, a dog, one of those things in the door with a little, like a little flappy... Oh, like a, um, a doggy door. A dog, doggy door. And, it was, mm. and I remember thinking, because there, there were no animals there, but I came up with my own theory as to what had happened, mm -hmm. and my strong feeling to this very day is that it was either, A, an assisted suicide. I believe yep. that one or two people had brought a generator to the dog door and then filled the house up, the apartment up, with carbon monoxide, and he had, uh, had died of carbon monoxide poisoning, and he had decided to go out with a bang. In fact, I'm, I'm just going to say, put it out there, that that's actually probably the best theory. And I was thinking about while I was talking as to another possibility that it was actually perhaps a more serious crime. Not that that's a crime, but, you know, an actual crime. But then I thought, yeah. no, no, because he must have had forewarning because of the way he went out. He went out with a bang. You with me? Yeah, I'm with you. So I'm thinking my, my, my theory is that he perhaps had a terminal illness, something, something was pretty bad, and he, he, I think some people assisted him in euthanizing him. That's, that's right. my theory. If you have a theory, I'm sure John and Paul Verhoeven would love to hear it. We have a link to their Loose Units Facebook page on our Facebook page. And the new book, Electric Blue, is out now. The Nitty Gritty Committee episode is out now too. Thank you to our patrons, including Kate Jones, Rebecca Donald, Andrea McDonald, Fiona Stewart, Sandra, Claire Annabelle, Lynn Tay and Anna Pike. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.